Welcome to the History of North America. I'm Mark Vinette. Before exploring early colonial Mexico, let's take a brief look back at the last stand of the Aztec, as well as European battle tactics and the Western military tradition with historian Victor Davis Hansen. The invasion of Mexico from the Caribbean at Veracruz and the march inland between 1519 and 1521 by Hernan Cortes. I think it's important, just as the Aztecs fought fiercely, and they did believe that they would perish unless they got suitable numbers of live captives that they could sacrifice to the pertinent or relevant gods, whether that was for harvest or for release from sickness or for prosperity. And they needed to take out the beating heart, literally, of the body and show it to the throng that was assembled. They did believe in something. But the Spaniards did too. They lived in the world, remember this is 1521, and were only about 30 years after the Reconquista and were after the Inquisition, but were also in the middle. I mean, Lepanto still coming up in 1571 and another 50 years. So the Spanish Empire is engaged in a lethal struggle with Islam in North Africa, especially, but in the peninsula of Spain itself. And it has created these Castilian warriors that by any fair measure were probably some of the fiercest warriors in the history of military conflict. And they believed in certain things that their duty was to save souls and spread Christianity for the benefit of their own soul and the benefit of souls yet not converted. And they believed that Spain, especially vis-a-vis France, but especially Britain, had a foreordained mission to bring civilization to where it wasn't there. had a very different view of civilization than Britain or France, but nevertheless, that was their view. And they believed, because of the unique position of the Iberian Peninsula, that they had two missions. One was to make sure that Islam did not come through the Mediterranean and destroy Western civilization on their southern flank. And because they had Atlantic ports, they would discover the New World. Remember that those two phenomena were very closely intertwined. The reason that Columbus left Spain and Portugal and the successive explorers was they were convinced that Islam barred the way to transcontinental trade, that the old silk routes, whether it was through Afghanistan or Eastern Asia Minor, etc., etc., on to China and India were now impossible because of the Ottoman Empire. And the Ottoman Empire was dynamic, and it was taking the Balkans, and it was going to come into Italy, and it was going to come into Western Europe. And so they needed routes to China and India, and they had a theory going back to classical science that the earth was round. So whether it was going down to the Cape of Good Hope or whether it was going the other way, what would eventually be Cape Horn, whatever it was, it was an idea that we've got to be independent and explore a new world and therefore seek autonomy and continue prosperity without worry of the Ottomans. But we have to keep the Ottomans out of Europe. And so it was successful. And that's that pressure allowed certain European countries that had Western ports, ports on the Atlantic, Britain, France, Portugal, Spain, the Netherlands. There's no accident that the focus of classical leverage power and influence went north. I know a lot of it's to do with the Protestant Reformation, but a 
lot of it's to do with the wealth and bounty of the new world. And they were particularly adept at utilizing it because they were ocean-faring peoples. And the people in the Mediterranean who had to fight Islam as a rearguard action, especially in Italy, they were galley-bound people. They were creating a type of maritime warfare that was dependent on the calm seas of the Mediterranean, rowing one or two masks only, and they were utterly unable and unprepared to go out in the Atlantic and sail in the way that the Spaniards, the Portuguese, or the French, or the British were, or the Dutch. And so it was kind of tragic. And so he was a member of that second generation of Spaniards who followed Columbus and were intent on magnifying the power of the Spanish crown of Iberian civilization, Spanish language, and Catholicism against the perceived enemies, which were the Protestants, the Jews, he thought, the Muslims. The medieval and early Renaissance Spanish mind was sort of characterized as there's enemies on all sides of us, and we've got to go to the new world to get the resources to prevail back in Europe. If you look at Venetian or Florentine or Roman Renaissance genius, they were the pillars of scientific excellence. And especially as it came to quality of cannon and firearms, you know, after the Battle of Lepanto, which was a crushing victory for the West, the Venetians, for example, looked at captured Ottoman cannon and they looked at the metallurgy. And even though the Ottomans had copied Venetian designs, they said, we can't use it. It's not up to our standards that the cannons will blow up after an insufficient number of shots and they junk them. The same goes through with the quality of Spaniard metallurgy, especially steel and military tactics. Because of their constant fighting with Islam in the Mediterranean and with one another, and until the Protestant Reformation and until the discovery of the New World, Western civilization was still a Mediterranean-focused civilization. You know, when you go to Eastern Europe today and, and you talk to people, they still feel in a very strange way that Eastern Europe got a bad rap, not just the Cold War or not just as Greece as battleground between East and West, but going back to the Byzantine Empire and the idea that certain people in Europe were the bulwark and slowed down Islamic aggression or Ottoman aggression and allowed Western Europe to have a buffer zone that would allow them to explore and become wealthy. And they're still sort of embittered because they became a garrison state in a way the West they feel didn't have to be in the same way. They were more open to experimentation, religious diversity, the Renaissance, the Reformation, discovery of the New World. But the people in the old Byzantine Empire and what was left of it after its collapse, and it was under Ottoman occupation and was constantly fighting and rebelling, their only hope was doubling down. They had to be rigid. They had to have one Orthodox religion. They couldn't leave. They had to fight and confront Islam from the East. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-218-6010. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-218-6010. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-218-6010. 
Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. That 500-year struggle, even though it was mostly marked with defeat before the 19th century, Bayfield was successful in keeping the West safe. It didn't mean that the West was always going to win, and they didn't against non-Westerners. And there were a lot of disasters. But what it meant was, it being the Western military tradition, it gave them advantages to fight in unfavorable landscapes at great distances with enormous logistical or numerical disparities. And what was that it? Well, it was about seven or eight things. It was the classical tradition, starting Greece and Rome, of inductive thinking and empiricism, that you had a scientific tradition that was not censored by religion or fable or custom or tribal concerns. And it can be very destructive. And so what I'm getting at is most, not all, but almost all of the great leaps and bounds in military technology were Western, whether it was gunpowder that was imported as a firecracker from China, and then it was used in a very sophisticated manner with corn, gunpowder, and metallurgy advances so that very soon the Chinese were trying to buy gunpowder weapons, even though they had found gunpowder at least before the Westerners. So the West had this ability to make superior weaponry because of its scientific tradition or borrow elements from other groups and improve upon it. And today, that tradition remains. So the Chinese say that they have a superior civilization and much more venerated and with a longer pedigree. Maybe so. But if you look at Chinese soldiers and weaponry, you can argue that the entire basis for their missiles, for their automatic weapons, for their new aircraft care is all westernized. Same is true with Japan, the same is true with South Korea. So people, when they westernize, they use American, European, or Western weaponry, and they improve on it if they can, but they improve on it in a Western fashion. And then when you look at the discipline, that goes back to the phalanx and the legion and the tercio and the the renaissance. And it basically suggests that the warrior cult of scalping or getting counting how many people you kill or individual feats of bravery or hit and run attacks or night marauding or cavalry marauding mounted troops is no replacement for infantry men on the ground in formation in which your bravery is assessed on the basis of how well you kept the line the phalanx, the legion, that is how well you protected the man on your left or right, and you created group solidarity, and you followed orders. And so once you could establish that system, and you could inculcate those values, then that also, along with the technology, gave you greater advantages. And when you mix into the context free market capitalism, then that meant not only that you have the scientific and military tradition, but you had the wherewithal, the labor and capital to send these forces, whether it's Kitchener all the way into Africa to avenge the death of Chinese Gordon or the British army into Zululand or fight the Boxer Rebellion in a way that not since the Ottomans did any non-Western power have an ability to get into the heart of Europe, which at that time was trisected between Orthodoxy, Protestantism, Catholicism, and was divided, but in a way that Islam was united. So there was this military tradition of discipline and a definition of courage as following orders in service to the order and the formation. And there was a military tradition 
and scientific tradition that gave you superior weaponry, and there was an economic tradition that gave you a greater chance to have be better supplied. And that, that explains why Cortez was successful in Mexico City in a way that Montezuma would have failed had he gone to Madrid. He couldn't get to Madrid. And by the same token, in the middle of the Civil War, where 700,000 Americans were killing each other, you would think that Native Americans, all of the Western tribes would unite and say, you know what, we can take St. Louis now. But they didn't because there was no sense of political statecraft in the way there was in the West of nationhood, the word nation, nadio. That didn't really exist in the same way among non-Western peoples. None of this meant that necessarily the West was morally superior. It didn't mean that victory was preordained. It didn't mean that there would be stupid commanders. It didn't mean when you're faced with a Saladin or a brilliant non-Westerner, you wouldn't lose. It just meant that you had options to deploy forces all over the world in engagements. Maybe it wasn't wise to be there, but you had an option of winning. And that was not true of people who did not have capitalist economies, that did not follow the Western scientific tradition, and did not define courage and battle by Western notions of discipline and formation and chain of command. Check out the YouTube version of this episode, which has accompanying images. I'm Mark Vinette, and I hope you're enjoying the ride. Doctors endorse it. Nutritionists recommend it. And customers love it. Calotrin Healthy Weight Loss. Ron in Texas lost 35 pounds. Marie in Pennsylvania lost 117 pounds with Calotrin. Diane not only lost weight, but she also found relief from arthritis. Lynn lost over 45 pounds. Calotrin contains collagen, the most abundant protein naturally occurring in the human body, which decreases as we age. Taking Calitrin promotes better sleep, more energy, less joint pain, and best of all, weight loss. Calitrin has an amazing 86% success rate with their 90-day supply. And this week, take advantage of their President's Day sale. Buy the 90-day supply and get an extra month free plus free shipping. Ordering is so easy. Just text the word HISTORY to the code 30605 and we'll send you a link to this special offer. Again, text HISTORY, that's H-I-S-T-O-R-Y, using the code 30605. 